Right now, we have the chance to hear from Dr. Turek in person, live. Would you please give my friend Dr. Turek a warm, lakes-free welcome this morning? Thanks, brother. Thanks, man. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. All right, how many of you were here yesterday or were somewhere else at the time? All right, how many of you are here right now? How many don't respond to surveys? Three out of 10 don't respond to surveys, Jason. All right, all right, seriously, how many were not here this weekend? Where were you? All right, for those that were here, I need to review some stuff that we did earlier. So the next six minutes is going to, you've heard before, okay? It's going to be complete review because in order to make the case that the New Testament's true, uh, we have to cover some of the stuff we covered this weekend just very briefly in summary form. So as we started the other night, I want to start back on September 29th, 2006. That's when Petty Officer Michael Monsor is a United States Navy SEAL operating in Ramadi, Iraq. Monsor is standing on a roof in Ramadi, and he's standing in front of a doorway to this roof. He has two Navy SEAL teammates lying in the sniper-prone position next to him. They've already taken AK-47 fire and a rocket-propelled grenade but they're not exactly sure where the enemy is. There's a bit of a lull in the fighting. Insurgents have blocked off the streets in Ramadi, and there's someone on the loudspeaker in the town mosque yelling, kill the Americans! As Mansour and his team are looking for the next attack, an insurgent from an unknown location throws a grenade up on the roof. It hits Mansour in the chest, and it falls to his feet. Due to the length of the throw, there's no opportunity to pick it up and throw it back. He has only a split second to make a decision. He can leap through the doorway behind him and save himself, but if he does, his two teammates lying on the roof at his feet will surely die. Monsor yells, Grenade! But instead of jumping backward to save himself, he jumps forward chest first onto the grenade. It detonates. 30 minutes later, 25-year-old Michael Monsor is dead. His two teammates receive only minor injuries because Monsor's body muffled the blast. One of the survivors said at Monsor's funeral, Mikey looked death in the face that day and said, you will not take my friends, I will go in their stead. I've never seen a United States president cry until April of 2008. That's when President George W. Bush invited Monsor's parents into the East Room of the White House to give them their son's Medal of Honor posthumously. The president couldn't even get through the citation without breaking down. Since then, Monsor's High School in Garden Grove, California, built a new stadium. They named it Michael A. Monsor Memorial Stadium. The golden trident insignia that the SEALs wear dominates the 50-yard line. January 2019, North Island, California, just outside of San Diego, the United States Navy commissioned the USS Michael Monsor, the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet, Zumwalt class. This is Monsor's mother, Sally, being escorted onto the ship 
named in honor of her fallen son. Now, why did they do this? Because Michael Monsor literally sacrificed himself to save his friends. There's no greater love than to sacrifice yourself to save your friends, said Jesus of Nazareth before he went to the cross. Michael Monsor sacrificed himself to save his friends. The question is, would anyone sacrifice himself to save you? And the answer is, someone already has. His name is Jesus of Nazareth. But in today's culture, a lot of people don't think the story's true. They think it's invented. They think it's embellished. It's got miracles in it. We don't believe in miracles anymore. And by the way, this was written down by religious people, and we know religious people tend to embellish things. Maybe they made the whole thing up. I actually think it's easy to show that Christianity is true. You only need to answer four questions in the affirmative to show that it's true. In other words, if you investigate these four questions, I think you'll realize that the answer to these four questions is yes, and if the answer to these four questions is yes, then Christianity is true. What are the four questions? Here are the four questions. isn't it? Yeah, that's actually from our TV show, which is on Wednesday nights here in the Central Time Zone. It would be 8 p.m. It's on Roku, uh, NRB. Just look for the NRB network, National Religious Broadcasters. If you have DirecTV, it's on channel 378. If you don't have Roku or DirecTV, it's on the internet on our website. And if you don't have DirecTV, the internet, or Roku, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, you can't, you can't see it, all right? You can, you can get the shows on our website. Uh, the radio program is on every Saturday morning. I don't know if it's here in the Minnesota area or not, but it doesn't matter because it's podcasted. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. What we do is we present evidence for Christianity, and we cross-examine ideas against it. In fact, uh, the one that came out yesterday, we addressed a number of questions, including the question, why did God create people he knew would go to hell? All right, so check that out. It's called I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, and there's our website right there, crossexamine.org. Now, why are these the four questions? And the people that were here this weekend know that we covered the first three questions already. The first question, does truth exist? Why is that important? Because you hear people saying, there is no truth. You got your truth. I got my truth. All truth is relative. If there's no truth, Christianity can't be true. Of course, if there's no truth, atheism can't be true either, right? Nothing can be true if there's no truth. Ladies and gentlemen, if there was no truth, would you ever go to school? Would you ever read a book? Would you ever come to church? Of course there's truth. In fact, this weekend, we pointed out that if someone were to ever claim to you there is no truth, what question should you ask them? Is that true? Is it true that there's no truth? Because if it's true that there's no truth, the claim there is no truth can't be true, but it claims to be true. Did I say that right? I know that can give you intellectual constipation if you think about it long enough. But that's because it's self-defeating. It's like saying, I can't speak a word in English. And this weekend, we went through a series of questions that are self-defeating. Questions like, or statements that are, are like, 
all truth is relative. You'd say, is that a relative truth, right? Or uh, there are no absolutes. Are you absolutely sure? Or you ought not judge, right? You've heard people say that. Well, isn't that a judgment? Why are you judging me for judging if we ought not judge, right? Okay. So we went through all this already. We concluded, of course, there's truth, and you can know it. The next question, though, is it true that God exists? And this is important for Christianity to be true because if there's no God, obviously Christianity is not true. And we gave three arguments for the existence of God for those of you that were here this weekend. And the first argument we gave had to do with the beginning of the universe. Even atheists are admitting that the universe has exploded into being out of nothing. And we pointed out that if space, matter, and time had a beginning out of nothing, then that whatever created space, matter, and time can't be made of space, matter, and time. In other words, the cause must transcend space, matter, and time. The cause must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing, personal in order to choose to create, and also intelligent to have a mind to choose to create. And we, we covered all this this weekend. We covered a couple of other arguments, too, including the design of the universe and the design of life and the moral argument, which says if there's no God, nothing's ultimately right or wrong. Yet we all know things that are right or wrong. Like it's wrong to invade a country that hasn't provoked you and start killing people like Putin's doing right now. We know that's wrong. If that's, if that's really true, there must be a standard beyond us that is really right, and that standard is God's nature. We covered all this already, okay? Then we got to the third question, are miracles possible? And that's important because, obviously, if miracles are not possible, Christianity can't be true. And we asked the question, what's the greatest miracle in the Bible? For those of you that were here, don't say a word. For the rest of you who weren't here, what is the greatest miracle in the Bible? Good try, but no. The resurrection's easy compared to the greatest miracle. What's that? Big yes. The greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Because if that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible, right? I mean, if it's true that God created the universe out of nothing, can he do whatever he wants that's not logically impossible inside the universe? Can he walk on water if he can create the universe out of nothing? Can he part the Red Sea if he can create the universe out of nothing? Can he raise Jesus from the dead if he can create the universe out of nothing? Yes, well, the most interesting thing is is that even atheists are admitting the data for the first verse, that, it, that there was a beginning. Now, they don't think it's God, but as we just pointed out, who else could it have been? It's got to be a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent cause. So we went through this already, and we're about to get to, is the New Testament true? Now, I got to point out that we're only going to be able to cover this at a very surface level. So if you really want to go deeper, the first thing I want you to do is text the word evidence to this phone number. Text the word evidence to 855-909-0582. If you do, I'm going to send you the entire PowerPoint presentation, all the stuff we covered this weekend, plus today, and even slides I can't show you. I'm going to send it to you in a PDF format so you can look at it at your leisure, all right? Now, if you want to go deeper than that, you can get the books on the book table. As Jason said, there's I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We also have a 12-part DVD series. It's about seven hours long. It goes through even what we covered here in much more detail. And there's another book out there called Stealing from God, Why Atheists Need God to Make Their Case. 
I've noticed that when atheists are arguing there is no God, they actually have to steal aspects of reality that would only exist if God existed in order to say he doesn't exist. In effect, they have to sit in God's lap to slap his face. Now, I want to point out that all the proceeds from the sale of the books and the DVDs will go to feed needy children. Mine. Okay? <laughs> Just so you know. I got three sons, so I need some help. Actually, they're a little bit older now. I was... As I mentioned to you earlier, I was in the, the Navy for eight years, which, by the way, stands for never again volunteer yourself. And my sons, when they were uh, going to college, they said, Dad, we, we think we want to go in the military. What should we do? I said, well, if you want to fight, go Navy. Because wherever there's a problem, we bring the fight to them. We don't have to ask for permission to use a base or anything. We just pull our aircraft carrier up, and we take care of the problem, right? But if you want a nice life, go Air Force. All right? So they went Air Force. The oldest son is an intelligence officer in Anchorage, Alaska. In fact, he's reading your email right now. And you shouldn't be emailing in church, by the way. Uh, the second son is a KC-10 pilot. You guys know what a KC-10 is? KC-10 is a big plane that refuels other planes in flight. You've seen the planes flying along. They got the boom coming out of the back, and other planes are coming up and getting gas as they're flying. So what we say about our middle son, Spencer, is that every day he flies up to 30,000 feet, he sits around, and he passes gas. <laughs> and he gets paid for it. This is every man's dream. If I got paid to pass gas, I'd be a multimillionaire already. The third son is not in the military, but he is out of the house. So my wife and I are now empty nesters. Yeah. Have to, do we have any empty nesters in here? Yeah, it actually took us a while to get used to that. About 10 minutes. That's how long it took to change the locks. All right. So we're going to dive into this stuff. But before we do, you might be thinking, not like you, you, if you come here and hear Jason, you, I, don't, I don't even need to say this, but sometimes some people will say, well, Frank, why do we need to have evidence? Shouldn't we just have faith? And the answer is no, a thousand times no. Not only does it make sense to have evidence, like why should you believe the Bible as opposed to not the Bible? Or why should you believe the Bible as, as opposed to, say, the Quran? Because there's evidence. And the Bible even teaches you ought to get evidence. In fact, Peter said this, always be ready to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, the gentleness and respect thing is hard for me because I'm originally from New Jersey. All right? But we're supposed to give evidence for what we believe. So what I want to do now, given the fact that we know that truth exists, that God exists, that miracles are possible, now I want to see, is the New Testament really telling us the truth, particularly about the resurrection of Jesus? Because if the resurrection's true, game over, Christianity's true. Of course, if the resurrection isn't true, then game over, it's false, you might as well sleep in on Sunday and do what you want the rest of the week because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, your faith is in vain, as Paul himself said, okay? So what evidence do we have that the resurrection actually occurred, that the New Testament writers are telling us the truth? Now, notice we're not starting by assuming the Bible's the word of God. That would be circular. We just want to see if the documents are, are reliable enough. They don't have to be inerrant to know this. Are they reliable enough to let us know that Jesus rose from the dead, Okay? And so I think there's very good evidence that Jesus rose from the dead and the New Testament writers are telling the truth. I'm going to list eight lines of evidence. We don't have time to look at all of them. We only have time to look at two of them. But these are all in the book. I'll just list them. 
They all begin with the letter E. It's alliterated because I used to be a Baptist, okay? E, early sources. In other words, the documents are very early, and the data within the documents is earlier still. Eyewitness details. There are verifiable eyewitness details throughout the text. In fact, if you read chapter 10 of I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, we list 84 details in the book of Acts alone and 59 details in the Gospel of John alone that, were, that have to be eyewitness details. Also, embarrassing stories. I'll explain that in a minute, as well as excruciating deaths, because number three and number four up there, we're going to spend a little bit of time on. Number five, embedded confirmation. This is the best evidence you've probably never heard of that shows you that the New Testament writers are independently witnessing the same historical events. They couldn't have invented this. this. And I can't explain it to you in a short period of time, so what I want you to do, if you're interested in this, and you should be, I want you to go Google later two words. Here are the two words. Undesigned coincidences. Undesigned coincidences. There are books written on this. I call it embedded confirmation. But undesigned coincidences, once you read this and you see some of these things, you're going to go, yeah, they couldn't have made this up, all right? Number six, expected predictions. This deals with Old Testament prophecy. In fact, if I only had one Old Testament prophecy to make my case on, it would be Isaiah chapter 53, written 700 years in advance. In fact, uh, Charlie Campbell out there has some uh, good resources on uh, prophecy as well. Number seven, extra biblical writers. There are 10 ancient non-Christian sources within 150 years of Jesus's life. People like Suetonius, Josephus, Thallus, Phlegon, these household names you've probably heard of, who uh, mention Jesus and the apostles, and when you add up their references to Jesus and the apostles, you get a story congruent with the New Testament. They don't say they believe Jesus rose from the dead, but these writers say the disciples believed he rose from the dead and were willing to die for it. And then finally, the explosive growth of the church out of Jerusalem. It's really hard to explain how a movement that comes out of Jerusalem and out of Judaism could have survived on an empirical claim that Jesus rose from the dead if he hadn't risen from the dead. Why? Who could have squashed Christianity and had a motive to do so? Yeah, the Romans and the Jews. And how could they have squashed Christianity? It would have been very easy. They could have gone to the tomb, taken out Jesus' body, paraded around town and said, stop all this nonsense, talk about the resurrection, he's dead, here's his body. They couldn't do that. Why? Because he was still using his body, okay? <laughs> he had resurrected, all right? Now, let's spend a little bit of time on number three and number four. Let's start with his embarrassing stories. Why embarrassing stories? Historians know that if there's something embarrassing to the author or authors in an historical text, or at least one that purports to be historical, it's probably true. Why would it be true that writers write embarrassing details either about themselves or their heroes, why do you think it would be true? Because you're not going to invent stories that make you or your hero look bad, right? I mean, you wouldn't do that. In fact, let me ask you guys a question. How many people in here have ever lied to make yourself look good? If you don't have your hand up right now, you're lying to make yourself look good, and it's not working. We know you're lying. Now, how many people have ever lied to make yourself look bad? Now, you don't lie to make yourself look bad. You might lie to make yourself look good, but you're not going to lie to embarrass yourself, right? In fact, 
The New Testament writers, and even the Old Testament writers, have filled their documents with embarrassing stories that they never would have invented. That's why we call this the duh factor. They're not making this up. Let me just give you a few examples. First of all, the New Testament writers depict themselves as dim-witted, right? How many times do they, they say in the text, we didn't know what he was talking about. We didn't know what he meant. In fact, they don't really understand Jesus's mission until he's already resurrected and then ascended to heaven. And then they go, wow, I could have had a V8, right? But up to that point, they don't quite get it. They depict themselves in a very unflattering light. Also, their leader, Peter, is called Satan by Jesus. Do you think they invented this? Do you think Mark, who wrote this down, at one point said to Peter, Hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. What do you think Peter would have said? Have him call you Satan. Look, I'm the leader here. This, this is embarrassing. And then Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He denies him three times. And then at the crucifixion, all of the disciples, maybe with the exception of one, they all run away. This is embarrassing. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away, right? They all run away. And who are the brave ones? The women. The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament documents down? Men. Now, what man is going to invent that he was hiding for fear of the Jews while the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Would any man in here invent that? I mean, if I was writing it down, I'd make myself look good, wouldn't you? I mean, I'd write something down like, we marched right down there and we overpowered that elite Roman guard. That sounds pretty good. John said, get out. <laughs> Peter roundhouse kicked him. Philip said, we'll be back. <laughs> and then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb, and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women, right? <laughs> We'd never say it was Mr. Sissy Pants why the women went down to discover the empty tomb. And oh, by the way, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses in that culture? Forget about the fact that it was embarrassing to men. It was, but independent of that, why would you never say the women were the first witnesses? Yes, because their testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the New Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses. Yet all four Gospels say the women were the first witnesses, which is telling us what? They really were. They had no motive to make this up. In fact, one of the women who was a witness was a formerly demon-possessed woman. Gee, what a great witness. Let's write her in there. She's credible, right? I actually had a woman come up to me once, and she said, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. <laughs> and I said, that is an excellent point. I had not thought of that. Because, ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going, hey, hon, what? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you the nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? Right? He's not going to tell you. I can't even believe this next 
verse is in the New Testament, but it is. You know, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus has assembled his disciples and he's giving them the Great Commission, and he says to them, go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. Notice he doesn't say make believers, right? There's a difference. Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations, baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen, right? He goes through all this. And it says there, right in verse 17, that the people who were there, the disciples who were there, it says, some believed, but some doubted. Some doubted. He's standing, resurrected, right in front of them. It's like they're standing there going, you see that guy over there? Yep. That guy over there is Jesus. Oh, no, it can't be Jesus. He was just killed not long ago. No, I'm telling you, it's him. It can't be. He's dead. That's Jesus. Look, the Romans killed him. They know how to kill people. They put a spear in his side. Blood and water came out. They crucified him. Jesus is dead. It's him. It can't be. It is. How do you know? The women told me. <laughs> They're not making this up. There's even potentially embarrassing details about Jesus in there. Jesus is called out of his mind by his own family who come to seize him and take him home. This is in Mark chapter 3. His own family thinks he's nuts. Now, you may have heard the scholars say, oh, the New Testament writers embellish Jesus to be God. Really? Then why is Mark chapter 3 in there where his own family thinks he's crazy? And Mark is almost universally recognized to be the earliest gospel. They're not inventing this. Jesus' own brothers don't believe in him. That's embarrassing. Your own family doesn't believe in you. We learn later, however, that James, the half-brother of Jesus, who wrote that little book in the New Testament called, you guys are sharp this morning, he dies as a martyr in the city of Jerusalem. He's thrown off the Temple Mount. He's the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. He's thrown off the Temple Mount by the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, in 62 A.D., and then they stone him to death. Now, why would James, who didn't believe Jesus, was the uh, Messiah who had resurrected from the dead? He didn't think his own brother was the Messiah, didn't think his own brother was God. Why would he, 30 years later, in the same city, die as a martyr, as the pastor of the church of his brother? You know who tells us why James now believes? Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. This is the earliest evidence for the resurrection. This little section of 1 Corinthians is actually a creed that was known orally and passed orally long before Paul wrote it down. That's why he says... I passed on to you what I received of this of first importance. And it names all the people Jesus appeared to. And one of the people that Jesus appears to is James, his own brother. By the way, how do we know James died as a martyr? It's not even in the New Testament. You know where it is? It's in Josephus, the Jewish historian, who was probably in Jerusalem at the time because he lived from 37 A.D. to about 100 A.D. It's also mentioned by Hegesippus, another historian who lived later. So James dies as a martyr for his own brother. Before the resurrection, James did not think his own brother was God. After the resurrection, James said, yo, bro, you're God. All right, now how many people in here have a brother? All right, how many people in here have a brother who thinks he's God? <laughs> yeah, you don't believe in him either, do you? 
neither did James. But it's embarrassing to say your own brothers don't believe in you. Jesus is called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. Do you think they made that up? He has his feet wiped with the hair of a prostitute, which easily could have been seen as a sexual advance. And oh, by the way, notice there are two prostitutes in Jesus' bloodline. The Messiah's bloodline has two prostitutes. Who? Rahab and Tamar. Do you think Matthew and Luke, when they wrote down the genealogy, said, you know what, I really think we ought to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes in there. No. They're not making this up. They're simply telling the truth, even though it's embarrassing. In fact, there's a lot of embarrassing people in the bloodline of the Messiah. Judah, from where we get the term Jew from, not a good guy. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. But read about Judah in Genesis. He's, he's an evil guy. David. David, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, but he's a liar, adulterer, and a murderer. Gee, I guess there's hope for the rest of us then, huh? Bathsheba is in there. In fact, Matthew, when he's recording the genealogy, has her in the genealogy, but he won't mention her name. What does he say instead? Uriah's wife. Ooh. Who's Uriah? Husband of Bathsheba, whom David had killed so he could have Bathsheba. Matthew's telling the truth, but it's kind of a backhanded way of telling the truth. It's a slam. It's saying David was evil. Uriah's wife. Look, they're not making this up. And then Jesus, the Messiah, is hung on a tree. According to Deuteronomy 21, 23, anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. If you're trying to pass off a Messiah to the Jews, you don't hang the guy on a tree. But he was hung on a tree. And what curse was he under? The curse of sin that we put him under. That's why he was hung on a tree. Do you realize that we fell when we misused the tree? And Jesus saves us by being hung on a tree. But if you're making this up, you don't say this, right? This is embarrassing. This is difficult. There's much more embarrassing, many more embarrassing details in the book if you want to go further, but we've got to move on to the next reason to believe that they're telling the truth, and that is excruciating details. Now, this word excruciating literally means out of the crucifixion. This is what it means. And these men who were in a position to know whether Jesus had really resurrected or not died excruciating deaths when they could have saved themselves by simply saying, look, it never happened. Now, we have really good evidence that four of them died excruciating deaths. We have lesser evidence for the rest of them, but there is no recorded fact from history that says any of these men ever recanted. Now, it's really important to remember that the writers of the New Testament, all of them, with the exception of Luke, were all believers in Yahweh. They were Old Testament believers in Yahweh. They thought they were God's chosen people. Why would they invent a resurrected Jesus, someone who claimed to be God, which they didn't think anyone could do because that would be blasphemy, and then say this guy rose from the dead? They didn't think a resurrection would happen in the middle of the time. They thought a resurrection would happen at the end of time, but not in the middle of time. Why would they invent all this? I don't think they would. In fact, you know what we ought to do? We ought to look at the apostles' beliefs and practices before and after the resurrection because there's a big change 
that happens to these men. First of all, before the resurrection, they believed in animal sacrifice. They've been slaying lambs for hundreds of years to take care of their sins. Then Jesus shows up and they say, Christ's sacrifice is enough. We don't need to slay these lambs anymore because these lambs are just symbols of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. Before they believed in the binding law of Moses, afterwards they believed Christ's life has fulfilled the binding law of Moses. Before they believed in strict monotheism, afterwards they believed in a trinity, three persons in one divine essence. Yes, I know the trinity is hinted at in the Old Testament, but it's much clearer in the New. Before they believed in the Sabbath, in fact, they thought they could be stoned for not obeying the Sabbath. Afterwards, they believed in Sunday worship. And Paul even says in Colossians chapter 2, don't let anyone tell you have to obey any Sabbath or festival day. In fact, out of the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament as binding on Christians. What's the only one that isn't? Keep holy the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath has arrived. Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is our rest. Before they believed in a conquering Messiah, afterwards they believed in a sacrificial Messiah who will come again and conquer. Before they believed in circumcision, afterwards they believed in baptism and communion. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what would have caused these pious Jews who thought they were God's chosen people to abandon everything on the left? These were long-held beliefs for centuries and adopt everything on the right virtually overnight. The only thing I can think of is what psychologists call an impact event. What's an impact event? An impact event is an event that occurs in your life that is so dramatic, so impactful, that it can cause you to change your perspective 180 degrees immediately. Some impact events are so dramatic, while you might not remember what you had for breakfast this morning, you'll remember an impact event that occurred 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago if you're old enough. In fact, there's only a few in here are going to be able to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. If you can remember where you were and what you were doing November 29th, 19, or November 22nd, 1963, raise your hand and hold it up high. Okay. Ladies and gentlemen, you see these people with their hands up? These people are very old. Okay. <laughs> November 22nd, 1963 is my earliest memory. I was two years old and two days. Yes, I'm 60 years old now. I know I don't look a day over 59. In fact, when I turned 50, my wife was very encouraging. She said, honey, you're going to live to be 100. I said, how do you know? She said, because you look half dead already. <laughs> anyway, I'm two years old and two days. I'm standing in the living room as a toddler in our home in Wanamassa, New Jersey. And my mother is sitting on an ottoman in front of a TV, a black and white TV, weeping uncontrollably. Mommy, what's the matter? What's the matter? They killed the president. They killed the president. President Kennedy assassinated that day. I can still see my mother in my mind right now sitting on that ottoman when she was 26 years old. She's 84 now. But I can see her in my mind at 26 that's my earliest memory. I don't remember anything before that and very little after that, okay? Where were you when the second plane hit the tower? 
I was in my home in, in Weddington, North Carolina. I had the TV on behind me in my office. I knew that the first tower had been hit. I didn't know by what. And I was talking to a pastor on the north side of Charlotte, and we were talking about me coming to his church to talk about it, uh, you know, preach at his church, and we, wanted, we were trying to figure out what the topic would be. And I said, do you have the TV on? He goes, yeah. I said, oh, maybe a Cessna hit the World Trade Tower. And the TV's behind me, and we're talking, and suddenly he screams into the phone. He goes, the second tower just got hit. I turned around, look at the TV. The second tower's on fire. I said, was it a Cessna? He goes, no, no, it was a big plane. It was like a United plane. I said, you saw that? He goes, it was just on live TV. It just flew in there and exploded. So I said, look, let me call you back. I hung up the phone. For some reason that morning I had CNN on, the Communist News Network. And I'm not making this up, but the commentator on CNN said, one has to think there's some sort of navigational error here. <laughs> I said, navigational error? This is the clearest day in the history of the Big Apple. You think the pilots don't know where they're going? You think Stevie Wonder's flying these planes? This is terrorism. I called that pastor the next day and I said, we're going to come to your church and talk about Islam because that's what this is related to. Now, 9-11 was over 20 years ago, and those you are old enough can remember something about that day. But if I asked you where you were and what you were doing 20 days ago, most of you are going to go, I don't know, let me look at my iPhone. What was I doing that day? I don't know. Why can you remember something from 20 years ago but not 20 days ago? No impact event 20 days ago. Impact event 20 years ago. You can remember what was going on. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus really rose from the dead, would that have been an impact event? Would they have remembered everything that happened? Would they have any trouble remembering it? No. That's the only way I can explain why they would have abandoned everything on the left and adopted everything on the right virtually overnight. In fact, what did the New Testament writers have to gain by making up a new religion? What did they get by saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? Well, they got kicked out of the synagogue. Remember, they were Jews. Then they got beaten, tortured, and killed. Last time I checked, that was not a list of perks. We're going to start a new religion. We are? Yeah. What's it going to get us? First, get kicked out of the synagogue, then beaten, tortured, and killed. Well, sign me up. <laughs> what a great idea. No, I don't think so. In fact, they had every motive to say the resurrection did not happen, not every motive to say it did. You know, a lot of people will discount the New Testament writers, because they were religious. You see, they were biased. They had an agenda. If you think about that for more than five seconds, you'll, think, you'll realize how stupid that objective is. What agenda did these people have? What did they have? What did they get for saying this, this really happened? My friend Jay Warner Wallace, who's been at this church, I don't know, when you had the, the conference a few years ago, is a cold case homicide detective. He's been on Dateline more than any other detective because he solves murders that are decades old. And he's written a book called cold, cold, ColdCaseChristianity.com and several other great books. Anyway, Jim says that whenever he finds a body he knows has been murdered, he knows there's only one of three reasons or a combination of these three reasons why that guy's dead. It's not a thousand reasons, there's just one of these three or a combination thereof. He says, that guy's dead because there was a sex issue, a money issue, or a power issue. Sex, money, or power. Those are the three motivators that cause any of us to sin. Sex, money, and power are good things, but they're so good we'll often take shortcuts to get them. Now, here's the question. 
You've got to find one of those three motivators to say that the New Testament writers invented this. Ladies and gentlemen, did the New Testament writers get real popular with the ladies for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. Did they get power? No, they got the opposite of power. They got persecuted. Paul had power as a persecutor of the church, but he was persecuted once he became a Christian. Did they get money for saying Jesus had resurrected from the dead? No. They weren't 21st century prosperity gospel uh, preachers. They didn't get money. They didn't get sex. They didn't get power. They didn't get money. There's no motive to invent this. Why would they go die for a known lie? Say, wait a minute, Frank. Are you going to say that martyrdom proves Christianity? If so, don't you have to say martyrdom proves Islam? No. Why? Well, there's a big difference between the Muslim martyrs of today and the New Testament martyrs of New Testament times. So let me just give you one difference for our purposes. The Muslim martyrs of, t- martyrs of today haven't witnessed anything to say that Islam is true. They just have faith. The New Testament martyrs, on the other hand, saw Jesus. They touched Jesus. They ate with Jesus. They verified he had resurrected from the dead with their own senses. You see, many people will die for a lie they think is the truth. Nobody will die for a lie they know is a lie. And the New Testament writers were in a position to know whether it was a lie or not, and they went to their deaths anyway. All right, last thing on this, and this is going to sound heretical for a minute, but it's not. Stick with me. Especially if you believe the Bible's inerrant like I do, this is going to sound like heresy, but it's not. Listen up. Christianity is not true because a series of documents we put under one binding we call the Bible says it's true. In fact, Christianity would be true if the Bible never existed. You say, how could that be? Because Christianity did not originate with a book Christianity originated with an event, the resurrection. Do you realize there were thousands of Christians before a line of the New Testament was ever written? Frank, how could you be a Christian without the book of Romans? Was Paul a Christian before he wrote the book of Romans? Of course he was. That's why he wrote the book of Romans, because he witnessed the resurrected Jesus, and he wanted to write about it. Was John a Christian before he wrote the Gospel of John? Of course he was. Why did he write it down? So we would know about it. Christianity is true regardless of what they wrote about it. The only reason we know it's true is because they wrote about it. But they were Christians before they wrote about it. In fact, we could look at it this way. The New Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the New Testament writers. Do you see the, do you see the difference here? These people didn't make this up. The resurrection compelled them to write about it. All right, now, as I say, there's more in the books if you want to go further. The overall argument is this. Does truth exist? If someone says there's no truth, you're going to say, is that true? Does God exist? Yes, we gave evidence in the past couple of days, and it's all in the books, that there's a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, moral, personal, intelligent creator who created and sustains all things. Are miracles possible? What's the greatest miracle in the Bible? Genesis 1.1. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible, and the, even the atheists are admitting the universe had a beginning. And is the, are the New Testament writers telling us the truth about the resurrection? Yeah, it seems like they are. And if they are, then Jesus is God, because if he's risen from the dead, 
He predicted and accomplished his own resurrection from the dead. He's God, which means whatever he teaches is true. Jesus taught the entire Old Testament as the word of God, and he promised the New Testament. You say, why trust Jesus? Look, I just have a personal policy. If somebody rises from the dead, I just trust whatever the guy says. Okay? And Jesus has done that. Now, again, if you want to go further, text the word evidence to this phone number, 855-909-0582. Now, I haven't told many audiences this because uh, this has just come out, but I want you guys to know about it. My son and I, the oldest one, the one who is the intelligence officer, is a movie buff. And we've gotten together. He's also a seminary grad. While he's in the Air Force, he went to seminary. And we've just written a new book that's coming out on May 3rd. It's called Hollywood Heroes, How Your Favorite Movies Reveal God. And I know this is going to sound odd, but do you see all these movie franchises up here? Captain America, Iron Man, Harry Potter. Harry Potter! Yeah, you'd be surprised. Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, Batman, and Wonder Woman, all of these movie franchises in some way point to the ultimate hero. Who's the ultimate hero? Jesus of Nazareth. And you can use these movies to evangelize, get your kids more interested in Christianity and apologetics and life lessons. And if you go to this website, HollywoodHeroesBook.com, the book doesn't come out until May 3rd, but if you pre-order this book on Amazon, wherever you get books, we're going to send you the audio version right now for free, okay? I just finished recording the audio version a couple of weeks ago, and I think you can use this book to help your kids or help anybody that likes movies. Just go to HollywoodHeroesBook.com, all right? All right, it's true, so what is the question? Well, you know what the best thing about all this is? Someone actually did die for you. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And you're probably thinking, ransom, what's this all about? Jesus actually sacrificed himself so he could pay for our sins. Now, when I was in the Navy a number of years ago, I was in naval aviation and we had to earn golden wings which were fairly hard to earn, but there's nothing more difficult in the Navy and maybe the entire military to earn than the Golden Trident. That's what the SEALs earn. Very few people who start SEAL training make it through. 5% maybe. Those that do make it through wear that Golden Trident with pride. It is literally their identity. When Michael Monsor was buried in Rosecrans Cemetery in San Diego, California. Just about every Navy SEAL on the West Coast showed up for his funeral. And when they showed up for his funeral, they walked past his casket and took off their tridents, and they pressed those tridents into his casket. They took their identity and put their identity in the one that died for them, the one that sacrificed for them. Ladies and gentlemen, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take our identity and put our identity in our Savior. But our culture says, oh, no, 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 put your identity in your political party. Or put your identity in your race. There's only one race, the human race. Or put your identity in your sexual orientation or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your vocation or your bank account. Ladies and gentlemen, none of those things are ultimate. You were meant to put your identity in your Savior. Do you know 
every other world religion, every other worldview expects you to achieve your identity. Do you know in Christianity, you do not achieve your identity, you receive your identity? You receive it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. If you have to achieve your identity, all the pressure is on you, and there's always someone else that can do it better. And what happens if you put your identity in something you achieve, and then at some point in life, you can't achieve it anymore? Do you no longer have an identity? If you put your identity in your job, what happens when you lose your job? You put your identity in your spouse, what happens if your spouse walks out or your spouse dies? Are you no longer a person with an identity? No, you have a right to become a child of God, as John said, who wrote the biography we call the Gospel of John. If you put your identity in your Savior who died for you and then rose again, that's the one thing you can never lose. You know, you can lose your job, you can lose your spouse, you can lose your money, you can lose your reputation, you can lose your life. The only thing you can't lose is Jesus. Have you accepted that free gift that he provides? If you haven't, Pastor Jason's going to give you the opportunity now to do so. Pastor? Thank you so much, Frank. What a great message that we have in the gospel and the good news of Jesus Christ. Frank just mentioned John chapter 1, verse 12. The apostle John says to those who believed him, to those who received, his, to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. And there is no greater source of joy and hope and blessing in this world than to have your identity rooted in the knowledge that you are a child of God. And that's something that's available to each and every one of us when we put our trust in Jesus and we trust in the gift that he purchased for us when he went to the cross and shed his blood to forgive us of our sins. And, you know, that's why we host these apologetics conferences. It's not just simply so that we can be equipped with a lot of good information, but it's ultimately about transformation. It's first and foremost about the transformation that is of ultimate importance, of laying our lives down at the foot of the cross and trusting in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. And if you haven't made that decision yet, I would encourage you to do that, even right here this morning, to tell Jesus that you, you acknowledge your sins, that, that you know that he is your only source of hope, and that you want him to become your Savior and Lord. And Jesus will do that for you. And, and, and for those of us who have already made that decision, the transformation that comes out of a weekend like this is about recommitting our lives to say, Lord, I have a new identity. I, I'm now your child. I'm an ambassador of the king. And I want to commit myself to living for the cause of the good news of Jesus and sharing that hope with others in my life who so desperately need to know that, that there's a God that loves them. And so this morning, I'm going to pray, and I'm just going to give us all an opportunity to respond this morning. I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to the good news of the gospel if you've never done that. And I'm going to give you an opportunity for those of you who have trusted in Jesus to say, yes, Lord, I'm going to go and continue to make an impact in this world for the cause of the gospel. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for the opportunity to be uh, reminded and encouraged in the reality of your truth here this morning. 
Thank you so much for Dr. Turek and the wisdom you've given him and just the, the powerful insights that he shared with us today. Uh, reasons to believe and, and, and to believe in the ultimate story ever told. That, that the creator God who made us loved us so much that he was willing to come into this world in the form of a man and lay down his life, taking the sin and death that, that, that we deserved to, to die. He, he took that death for us. You did that, Lord. Your son Jesus did that for us. And Lord, we, we trust in you this morning. We, we pray that if there is anybody here this morning who hasn't put their hope and faith in you, that they too would come to you right now and just simply say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I need you. I know that I need your amazing grace. I, I want to stop living my life in rebellion against you, and I want to have a new identity as a child of God. And Jesus, would you forgive my sins? Would you make me a new creation? Would you give me a new identity? And friends, I promise if you call upon the Lord and pray that prayer, it, it, even in the quiet of your heart, God knows your desires. He will forgive you. He will make you a new creation. You too can be a child of God. And Lord, for those of us here this morning who know that hope and know that good news, that joy of walking in the abundant life that you offer, I pray, God, that we would recommit ourselves here this morning again to, to living for you, to championing the good news of the gospel, to serving faithfully as your ambassadors in this world. And I just pray, God, that each and every one of us would recommit ourselves to that cause, to keep the main thing the main thing, sharing the hope of Jesus with a world who so desperately needs him. So, Lord, we just thank you for the opportunity to be together this morning. And we pray, God, that you would help us to remain faithful in communicating the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray all this in your name. Amen. Friends, I just want to encourage you this morning, if you uh, prayed that prayer, uh, whether a first-time decision of faith to trust in Jesus, or you're here thinking, I, I, I want to be uh, an ambassador of Christ and make an impact in this world, we're going to have some of our elders and Stephen ministers here at the front of the platform. We would love to talk to you. If that was a first-time decision for you or something that you were recommitting your life to this morning, uh, please come and let us know that, and we want to pray with you and celebrate that this morning. But uh, in the meantime, thank you for coming today, and I hope uh, you were blessed by Dr. Turek. Just to remind you, Charlie Campbell will be downstairs at 1030, uh, or I'm sorry, at 1040, doing a terrific session on 10 upcoming events in Bible prophecy. Uh, don't miss that. I'm telling you, it's awesome. And so uh, that's going to starting about a half hour and uh thank you so much may god bless you and have a terrific week amen hi everybody pastor jason here and i want to thank you for joining us for our online worship service this morning i pray it's been a blessing to you i want to encourage you now to visit our church website www.lakesfree.org there you can find more information about our church, you can find updates on the latest happenings here at Lakes Free, and you can find an abundance of resources for further teaching, equipping, and encouragement. So please check that out. We also have a prayer link there on our homepage where you can submit prayer requests, and we would love to pray for you. And if you'd like to continue your worship by giving to the work of the Lord here at Lakes Free Church, we have a very clear and simple giving link there on our homepage, and we would appreciate your support. 
I want to thank you again for being with us this morning. I pray that you have a blessed